Chapter 3 The Full Renewal of the Heart The first many years of my Christian life, I thought of myself as pretty much my same old self with a little extra help from God. I would have told you that I believed I had been made new and set free from sin, since this is biblically undebatable. But my understanding of these truths was flawed. I did not really believe that I was an entirely new creation. Instead, I believed that I was essentially the same person as before, just with a new life or a new direction in life, in the basic sense that I was now following Jesus and destined to be with Him forever. Like Jesus' own disciples in their first years with Him, prior to His death and resurrection, I had simply chosen to leave my old life behind to go with Him. Now with the Holy Spirit, I had Him around to teach me, lead me, encourage me, and love me. Nevertheless, I still felt like me, the same sinner I had always been, just not wanting to sin anymore. I felt that I was still in the same sinful flesh, only now desiring to overcome it, hoping one day I might be able to with Jesus' help. But is this all that is meant by newness of life? In regarding my freedom, I was not entirely sure what it meant either. It was a lot more like free will than it was like victory. At best, I figured it to mean that my sin no longer had as much control over me as it did before. But despite my desire to obey God, I found that I was constantly under the influence of the same sinful passions, too often giving in to the flesh. And I was unable to reconcile the truth in Scripture that I was free from sin with the truth about my life. If I was truly free, then why did I still feel enslaved to sin? I could not blame God, although sometimes I did. The problem had to be me. The only conclusion I could come up with was that apparently I did not want God enough. So once again, I was left waiting for the day that God would finally change me. I spent years waiting for that breakthrough, praying for that second conversion when I would fall madly in love with God and conquer my flesh once and for all. Through these years, I would swing from zeal to disappointment to apathy to conviction, then start the process all over again. I confessed my sins often. I sought help from the body of believers. I prayed for deliverance with fervor. I sought God the best I knew how. And I waited expectantly for a change until I inevitably grew tired and disappointed in myself, forced to accept once again that this was just the Christian life. This was what God had done for me. He had placed me in a battle that I must fight, but could not win, not even with his help. Sure, there was no condemnation, but there was no genuine sense of victory either, not in this life anyway. How pitiful, how wretched, how dare we call this a state of grace. Sin without knowing God, and it hurts but a little. But spit in your lover's face, day after day, then thank him for forgiving you and tell him you love him, knowing full well that you will do it again. One cannot continue in this state for long without either beginning to hate themselves or grow numb to their sin. Not surprisingly, most choose the latter. It is simply too painful otherwise. And I tell you, if it were not for the actual grace of God, I would have been left in that hell for the remainder of this life. How many well-intentioned, misinformed Christians are stuck in that same awful state?
I had been reconciled to God through the forgiveness of sins. That much I understood. But now forgiven, what advantage did I have in this new life over my previous state? What exactly is this grace in which we stand? Romans 5.2 I know I had the Holy Spirit, full access to God, and any amount of help I could need from Him. But I was still me. I was still a sinner who, despite my ultimate desire to do God's will, could not seem to do it in the given moment. And in the midst of my temptations, whatever extra help God was ready to provide, I was surprisingly unwilling to reach out and receive. What help is it to be in a relationship with God, or even to love Him deeply, if whenever temptation arises, I cannot muster up the desire to call on Him for help? What good does it do to have the Holy Spirit if I willfully shut Him out every time my flesh is aroused? What good is it if my heart delights in God, but my flesh delights in sin, and I am still a man of the flesh? I will tell you bluntly, it is good for nothing. It is no help at all. As wonderful as it is to be in a relationship with God, this relationship never changed me the way I had been taught that it should. Then in one short season, everything changed when I learned that the grace I had been looking for had already been given, and more, how to walk in it through faith each day of my life. For years, I had been seeking a renewal of my heart, but as it turns out, I would be transformed by the renewal of my mind. Romans 12.2 I did not need to learn how to do better. I needed to learn how to believe better. These days, when people ask me how to break free from sin, I will ask them, what do you think it would take for you to be free? Almost without fail, they say something like, they need to be more disciplined. They need to pray more. They need an accountability partner. They need God to change their heart. They need to better understand why they act the way they do, etc. Notice what all these have in common. Each is a work that has yet to be done. It is unfinished business. And whether they imagine this work to be done is on God's end or their end, the point is that they are left in wait, simply wondering when the gospel will deliver on its promises. I can relate to this. But what we are about to learn is that, by and large, Christians have been waiting for something that has already been done and can only be received by believing that it is true. I assured you of a gospel that sets you free, and it begins by understanding how it already has. The Work of Jesus Let's start where we left off in the last chapter. Remember when we made a distinction between the flesh and the spirit? That will be very helpful now in understanding what God has done through Jesus for all who believe. When a person is set on pursuing the desires of the flesh, there obviously must be a change of heart and a turning toward God to live according to His commands. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 One must choose to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2.22 Otherwise, they have no salvation. I am not in any way trying to diminish the importance of this step, which we might simply call repentance. In fact, we will give it greater attention in the final chapter. But here, we must come to terms with the fact, once again, 
that this step alone does not equal freedom and victory over sin, but leaves us under the power and control of our flesh, despite all our efforts to be good. Even when we desire to do what is right, if we are still in the flesh, trying to obey God by our own willpower, then we are not walking in grace and freedom. Romans 7 is the clearest place in Scripture that attests to this truth, that to simply want to obey God is not the proper solution for the problem at hand. See Romans 7, 22-24. We must believe in what God has done through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Jesus, God, the Word, was born into the flesh and under the law. He was made fully human, although still God, of course, and therefore required to obey the law by his own strength, resisting and overcoming all the passions of the flesh which were contrary to this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 1 John 5.16 The law promised life to all who obeyed, see Romans 7.10, and death to those who did not, See Genesis 2.17. Jesus is the one who, by the strength of his own will, fulfilled all the commands of God, successfully conquering the temptations of his flesh, becoming obedient to the point of death, and keeping his whole self, including the flesh, pure and holy. He therefore was able to present himself to the Father without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1.19 This is what Jesus means when he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17. He came to live the perfect and sinless life by works of the law that was required of every human. He came to merit eternal life in human form and nature through righteousness. This was not merely a fulfillment of the Jewish law as the scribes and Pharisees understood it, but a fulfillment of true righteousness, which is perfect love, wherein nothing within a person defiles him. See Mark 7, 14-23, and Matthew 5, 20-48. Now consider the phrase, The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. When one sins, one owes. But since Jesus did not sin, he did not owe anything. Therefore, death had no power over him. This is why, just before breathing his last, it says that he yielded up his spirit, Matthew 27.50, gave up his spirit, John 19.30, and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23.46. This is also why he said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. John 10.18 The long short of it is that, although his death appeared temporarily to be a win for the powers of evil and darkness, it was the exact opposite. This final act of obedience completed Christ's perfection, and thus sealed his victory over sin and death forever. Hence the resurrection. Death could neither take his life nor keep him dead. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 2.24 Because of his righteousness, he was raised again to life, 
in a new and glorified human body in which he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, and this is where I beg your attention, if we were to stop there, at Jesus' incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension, then the gospel would be a solo victory for God with no benefit to his people. Jesus would be the only human in heaven forever. None of these things that he so wonderfully accomplished would have any meaning or practical value in the life of his followers. Make no mistake about it. The linchpin of this whole operation is that those who believe receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 This is more than a friendly relationship with the Spirit. It is oneness with the Spirit. For he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6.17 And from this reality flows nearly every grace in the Christian life. I say this to make an important point. The work of Jesus is not simply something for us to admire from afar, to stir up the kinds of emotions in our hearts that might then motivate us to repent and obey. If we understand and preach the gospel this way, as merely a motivational tool, we continue under the law that requires us to obey with our own willpower, which we often lack. I'm not sure it matters that some preach grace and forgiveness over hell, fire, and damnation. One motivates with love and the other with fear, but both do nothing more than try to motivate hearts of stone. And if we are honest, it does not take long for the masses to grow dull of hearing these motivational speeches. We all know we ought to be more affected by Jesus' work, but the fact is, usually we are not. Thank God we do not need to rely on motivation any longer. There is more to the gospel, there is more to grace, and we must only believe. We will eventually get very practical, but we must first devote ourselves to fully understanding what Christ has done for all who believe. The union of God and man is our focus moving forward, and it is multifaceted. For the rest of this chapter, we will discuss what it means that Christ is in us, and then in the next chapter, what it means that we are in Christ. Before we do, I encourage you to read and contemplate Jesus' prayer. I ask for those who will believe in me through the word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Father, I desire that they also may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. John 17, 20-24 No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Up to this point, I have not addressed what I imagine to be a major concern regarding what I wrote in the last chapter, that we need to distinguish between the self and the sin. Or to put it a little differently, we need to recognize that the desires of our flesh, even those which we act out, are not a true reflection of our will. I have been saving that conversation for this moment. Here are some of the questions you may have. 
how do I know if my spirit is truly willing? Can I say without deceiving myself that I actually want to be free and obey God? Can I say with integrity, it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me? How do I discern what is of my flesh and what is of my spirit? These questions, admittedly, are quite difficult to answer when one must discern the thoughts and intentions of their own heart. But fortunately, this is no longer an issue for the believer, since the heart has been circumcised by the Spirit of God himself. See Romans 2.29. To be sure, this was God's promise from long ago, that he has fulfilled in all who believe in Jesus. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26-27 Pay close attention to those words, and you will see that he promised to remove the bad heart or spirit and replace it with his own. This renewal of the spirit, Titus 3, 5, does not simply mean that Jesus is with us now, as if we are basically the same persons as before, with just a little extra help from God. No, it means that we have become one with God. Our spirits have been joined. His desires are our desires. His will is our will. His character is our character. His righteousness is our righteousness. Our identity through and through, is Jesus? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 One of my favorite verses that describes this total transformation is Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. To be honest, I used to think that Paul was speaking here of some heightened spiritual state that he had achieved through many years of hard work and devotion to the Lord, so that after dying to himself over and over again to a greater degree each day, he could finally claim that he had completely died and embodied Christ. For me, this meant that I had much more dying to do before I could make the same claim. But this is not what Paul is saying. In the context of this passage, Paul was writing about justification, which occurs the moment a person believes. He is not describing his state of maturity, but his state since believing in Christ. He is not boasting of his progress in the faith, but teaching the whole church what they too are to believe about themselves. This is not a matter of opinion, nor is it up for debate. Read it for yourself. It is a plain matter of fact. There is one prerequisite for the renewal of your spirit. Faith. If you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, say it now with confidence. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is not the same old you plus Christ. It is Christ. It is not Christ and you. It is Christ in you. It is not your sin plus his righteousness. It is his righteousness. Let nothing else but this define your life on earth. You say, 
This is hard to believe. Can it really be true? It does not appear to be so. Let me introduce you, believer, to the real thing called faith. There is nothing more for you to do but to believe in what he has done. They asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 6, 28-29 Try for even half a day to believe such a magnificent thing, and you will see how faith in Jesus means a lot more than you may have been taught. For practical purposes, this means that there is no longer any reason to wonder who we really are or what we truly desire. It matters not one bit what we see or feel in a given moment. Sights and feelings are things of the flesh. We are not saved by seeing, nor are we sanctified by feelings. If something is sinful or contrary to the character of God, then it must be of the flesh and not from your spirit. No matter how strongly you feel the desire, it is not actually you desiring it, but your flesh desiring it, which the enemy wants you to confuse with your spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians 5.17 This verse makes it easy to understand. Whenever we disobey, it is not because we wanted to, rather, it is because the flesh kept us from doing the thing that we actually wanted to do. Our true desires are in alignment with the Spirit who is in us. Satan wants you to believe that your anger and pride, your lust and your apathy, your greed and your cowardice, your fear and resentment, and all the fruits of such things as these were birthed from your dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing soul. This is how he keeps you tied to them, by making you believe that you are still this way. But by definition of who you are, sin cannot be a reflection of your soul or spirit, for you have become one with the Spirit of Christ in you. If you want to know yourself, the question is always, who is Christ? And what does He desire? If you fall into sin, it is because you are deceived into sin, forgetting who you are and have not yet been perfected in faith. See James 1.22-24. How many times in the New Testament letters are the people of God referred to as sinners? Once, James 4.9. How many times does it refer to them all as saints? Over 60. This is not an accident. What a tragedy that in the church today we cannot speak to one another this way. We save the label of saint for the few who appear to deserve it. And then we ignorantly trumpet, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, with not the slightest clue of what that grace actually entails. We have an identity crisis, and it is because we do not know the gospel. Sinners, take your false humility and throw it out the window. It should not be allowed in our church. Believers are saints. That is what the Bible says. My, oh my, how Satan is shaking in his snakeskin boots. His job has been quite easy up to this point, but it is about to get much harder. Now, we are literally the continuance of the Incarnation. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6.19
And here's why it matters. What Christ successfully accomplished in his own flesh, he will do again in yours, as you learn to walk by faith and identify with him alone. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 What was it, I ask you, that made Christ so unshakable in the midst of suffering and temptation? Perhaps it was that he knew who he was. With razor-sharp clarity of his identity in God, the flesh could make him suffer, but it could not deceive him into sin. Every manifestation of its corruption was only a reminder of who he was not, and therefore what he came to do. Truth was his anchor, and now it is ours too. If you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you no longer want to sin. You no longer desire the things of this world. Your spirit is clean by the word you have received. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. How offensive, how ludicrous, you must work to get there, they will tell you. But no, you must work to believe that he has brought you there, and the fruit you desire will emerge. It really is all by grace through faith. Is this too much to bear? Does it not reek of the gospel aroma? Oh, but wait, there is more.